The following content is from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a gospel-driven high-adventure camp in western North Carolina. Go to swoutfitters.com to learn more about our camps and conferences. Enjoy the message. Amen. Hey, everybody. Hello, hello. Go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. So tonight, we're going to learn a lesson from Peter. A huge lesson, and really, it's a lesson that he learned the hard way. And that's kind of a phrase that gets around, like, man, that, that guy, he's got he's to learn things the hard way. And probably all of us now at this stage in life, man, you, there's lessons you've learned the hard way. I know, man, for me, the first half of my life was, was like that. I feel like I, my brain developed super slow and then stopped. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and I've like there's so many times in my life where, as a young man, I, and, and most of the things that I would not, I would not tell you. I'd be embarrassed to tell you. Don't want to tell. Don't want to talk about it. But so many moments where I just remember sitting and thinking, man, when am I going to learn? Like, when am I going to stop doing this stupid thing? And but I remember one big one was I was 11 years old, and my uncle had uh, he was traveling from Atlanta to Seattle, Washington, and he left his car in the driveway. And um, it sat there for a week, and it was over the summer, so I wasn't in school. And one day, I decided it would be a good idea to take his car for a joyride. Yep. (laughs) And, yeah, it was awesome for about 45 seconds until I lost control and T-boned a mailbox. Not just any mailbox. It was a brick mailbox. And when I hit that joker, it started to come out of the ground, but it had a big concrete base, and that concrete base came up and caught the underside of the car, and it was a front-wheel drive car. So at some point, when I realized what had happened, I was staring at the skyline, and all I could hear was the wheels going zzzz. And I was like, i got to get out of here, put it in reverse. Now they're just spinning freely backwards. (laughs) Awesome moment in my life. I learned a lot. Learned a lot about insurance and car payments and uncles that never talk to you again. And like, <laughs> it's wonderful. And I think, man, there's, yeah, there's things that you just have to learn. And, and so that's the phrase, right, that you, some people just have to learn the hard way. But the best is, man, if you can learn from somebody else's mistakes. And I think as you get older in life, man, there are there's things that you want to teach people because you don't want them to go through the same things that you went through. And the reality is, man, that, the lesson that we're going to learn tonight, man, it's sobering, sobering, because for Peter, this was such a painful lesson that he learned, and he's going to walk us through it. He's going to walk us through it because, and we've already touched on this, the opening session that Brody preached, that this lesson from Peter's life came from the night that he ultimately denied Jesus three times, because that night started with Jesus warning Peter he told Peter he said man Satan wants to take you down that that's his desire and he's warning Peter and Peter in his pride says and Jesus I'm I got you like I'm not going to leave you I would never do that I would die for you a little while later man they're in the garden and Jesus is beginning to feel the weight of what's going to happen to him. 
And, and so he tells, he tells Peter and the other guys, he's like, man, just stay up and pray with me. So I'm gonna go over there, I'm gonna pray, but I, I want you to stay up and pray. Watch, be vigilant. Like, be vigilant right now. Watch and pray. And Peter just keeps falling asleep. And you know how the story ends there, man. He, he denies Jesus. He denies Jesus. But then after the resurrection, when Jesus has paid for that sin and all the sin of the world for all those who will call on Jesus in repentance and faith, when Jesus has done that and he raises again from the dead, he comes to Peter and he confirms him, he restores him, he establishes Peter. Now this awesome conversation. And now Peter, as an old man, writing to the church and writing to us, writing to you. He wants to pass along the same warning, but he wants us to learn the lesson that he learned the hard way. So 1 Peter chapter 5, I'm gonna start in verse six. He says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Right there, do you see it? Picture Peter in your mind. He's, he's writing this down. And he, he, I imagine maybe he's got to stop. And his mind flashes back to Jesus saying, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to take you down. And now he's writing it, and he, and he wants us to feel that. But don't make the same mistake that I made. Don't underestimate this warning. But don't think that following Jesus is easy. Don't think that following Jesus is fun. Don't think that this, is meant, this life is meant to be your best life now, and it's gonna be easy and safe and comfortable. He says, no, we got a real enemy who wants to devour you. He wants to de destroy your faith. So wake up. Verse nine, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your, brother, by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let's work through this. He says, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And he's already, he's just got done saying, he said, man, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So he says, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And that's a really awesome picture that when he, he uses that terminology, he says, the mighty hand of God. I mean, that's a rich, rich phrase, primarily from the Old Testament, primarily from the story of the Exodus where God rescues his people out of physical slavery in Egypt. That, that it's the picture that, yeah, God has this powerful arm that he stretches out in order to save and deliver his people. And so he's reminding us, like, yeah, humble yourself 
under the powerful arm of God, the arm that was strong enough to rescue you out of sin, out of death, out from under condemnation, out from the penalty of eternal damnation. But, but it's not just a picture that God's arm is powerful enough to snatch us out of hell and rescue us and pull us back, but that he's strong enough to keep us, to protect us, that will belong to him forever. He says, so, man, knowing that, knowing that God is strong enough to save you and to keep you and to preserve your faith, humble yourself. So, I think my, my favorite definition of humility comes from C.S. Lewis. And he said this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. All right, so if you're dyslexic like me, that melts your brain. So I'm gonna read it again slowly and backwards. No, um, <laughs> I'm just gonna read it again slowly. <laughs> I got myself with that joke. <laughs> I, want, uh, I'll, I for real have, I'm dyslexic, and it's been just wonderful my entire life. A uh, lot, lot of fun moments, um, like spelling bees, things like that. Um, but I remember one day I was driving down the road, this is not a lie, and uh, uh, it was back when people listened to just the radio, and I had the radio on, and, and it was a commercial for this program for dyslexic people to help them <laughs> read, write, talk. And uh, and <laughs> I'm not making fun. I'm with you. If that's you, that like th- you're my people. Like we need to untie together. And <laughs> all right. And, <laughs> and so the commercial for real. It, it it was talking about this program that you could enter and get this material. And I know, like on those old radio commercials, it would always end with a one eight hundred number. And I'm all, I'm laughing out loud because I'm going. We can't remember, like, I'm driving, I won't remember the number. And, but they got to it, and they're like, and so to order your whatever trial, call 1-800-ABC. Yeah, and they would just walk through, like, seven letters in the alphabet, and I thought, you get it. I'm ordering the program. That had nothing to do with Peter. So, but how did we get there? Oh, yeah, humility... Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. Because here's where humility comes from. Because all of us, men, all of us are born prideful. And that may at times look more like arrogance, just absolute arrogance, and at times it may look like insecurity. Either way, whether you're in a moment of arrogance or insecurity, you're focused on yourself. And that is the opposite of humility. And where humility comes from, first and foremost, is having a right view of God. Because it's only when we see God for who he really is that we'll see ourselves for how we really are. And that frees us. If I'll first see God in his holiness, in his power, in his justice, I'll fear him. But the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because what the fear of the Lord will do is show me that, yeah, I'm sinful. I fall short, but it doesn't make me run away from God and that kind of fear. What it does is it drives me to the love of God that's been supplied in Jesus because that's my only hope. And so the fear of the Lord then puts me in a position to be humble. 
because I can see God for who he is and then see myself in my desperate need for a savior and then see that that savior, Jesus, that he loves me and that he gives me a new identity. So I don't have to walk around in arrogance and this is where Peter slipped up and messed up that night is he thought he could handle that trial. He thought he could handle it. He thought he could stand on his two feet. And he got taken down. But I also, it's not the other extreme where we walk around like spiritual Eeyores. Where we only think negatively about ourselves. Hate ourselves. No man, I see myself for who I now am in Jesus. And I, be, I believe what the Bible says to be true about me in Jesus, that I'm a son, that I'm forgiven, that I'm redeemed, that I'm loved, that I'm adopted, that he'll never leave me, that he'll never forsake me. I believe that, and that frees me now, man, just to worship God and to love and serve people. Because I'm not, my focus won't be on me. So he says that, he says, humble yourself. God resists the proud. Gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty arm, the mighty hand of God, who has the power to rescue you out of hell and to keep you forever. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he, Jesus, put him, the child, in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, here it is, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The humility of a child shows itself in their dependence on their parents and their trust in them to provide for them, to protect them, and to care for them. Humbling myself under the mighty hand of God looks like recognizing my dependence on God's ability alone to save and to keep me. Humbling myself under the mighty hand of God looks like trusting in his promises in times of peace and in times of suffering. It looks like walking in repentance when I fail to trust him and love him. And ultimately, Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. We don't have time to go there, but man, I encourage you to go to Philippians 2. Because we see that, man, our God, that he's not calling us to be something that he's not. He's humble. Jesus, God, the second person of the Trinity, the word made flesh, humbled himself. He left the glory that he alone is worthy of in heaven. He left his throne left the worship of sinless angels to become one of us, to be born of a virgin, to be born in a manger, to become a servant and to suffer and die. But the humility that Jesus put on display in order to glorify the Father and to serve us with salvation, that led to his exaltation to where now <laughs> there is no name above this name the name of Jesus, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God.
And Peter's saying, man, look at that example. It's drawing our attention to Christ. Because he will exalt us. That's what he says here. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble, he says, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Listen to this. The Christian's future inheritance and exaltation, our eternal share in the glory of Christ, will be awarded to us on the day of his appearing, his second coming. But that promised day only comes after this brief season of present day sufferings. What brief season? Your life. Your life here on earth. The Bible is clear. Our life here will be marked primarily by different types of suffering. And what Peter has here, here in the crosshairs, when he talks about suffering, is persecution for our witness to the gospel. It has in the scope any suffering that we experience as humans, but he's zeroing in on what it means to suffer for our witness to Jesus. But that promised day only comes after this brief season of present day suffering. Suffering always precedes glory. It was so for God's son. It'll be so for us as well. So what is this going to look like? What's it going to look like practically as we humble ourselves? Look what he says in verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him, on Jesus, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It says, cast your anxieties on him. Let's hit on this briefly, man, this is awesome. He, he doesn't say that if you were a real Christian, you wouldn't have anxieties. Okay, so again, the anxiety that he's pointing to is the fear of if I keep telling people about Jesus, I might lose my job, I might lose my family, I might be tortured, I might be thrown in prison, I might be killed for the gospel. And so that's the specific anxiety that he's talking about. But the, the reality is as humans, man, we are riddled with anxieties and fears. And he's telling us, it's not, this isn't a slap in the back of the head like, hey, don't be anxious, knucklehead. He's telling us, man, I know you're anxious, here's what you do with them. He tells us what to do with the anxieties that we do have. We have action to take here. We must respond in and with faith, taking those thoughts captive and preaching the gospel to ourselves. What does this look like? It looks like praying. Again, Jesus is our example here. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested and would be beaten and tortured and crucified and ultimately absorb the wrath of God for all our sin and he knew it was all coming and when he was tempted to give in to anxiety, what did Jesus do? He prayed. He prayed. So how much more do we need to pray when we're tempted to give in to anxieties? To, to cast those cares. What, what does that look like? Man, just be real. Talk to God about what you're thinking, what you're feeling. And then preach. Preach the gospel to yourselves. Remember his mighty hand to save you. Remember what he's already done. Think about his, the promises he's given us. Think about what he says to be true of you in Christ. Jesus said in John 16, 33, 
I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. That in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Verse 8, again, he tells us, same warning he received, Satan wants to take you down. Satan wants to take you down. He wants to swallow up your witness and your faith. Believers must remain vigilant and alert until the end because the devil seeks to destroy their faith. The devil inflicts persecution on believers so that they will deny Christ. Peter portrays the devil as a roaring lion seeking to devour its prey. The devil roars like a lion to induce fear in Christians. In other words, persecution is the roar by which he tries to intimidate believers in the hope that they will give up at the potential of suffering. His goal is to devour our witness and our faith. Satan's a real enemy. The devil's a real enemy. But listen, and you know this, he's a defeated enemy. He's limited in his power. He's on a leash. Ultimately, the suffering, now look at me, listen to me. Ultimately, the suffering that Satan is allowed to unleash on us serves a purpose in our lives for all of eternity. Listen, for you, if you're a Christian, for us as believers, because everybody suffers, everybody suffers. No one gets through this life without suffering. Listen to me, we alone as Christians know that there is eternal purpose in the suffering we experience. God has promised us that he's working all those things. Everything we suffer, he says, is preparing a weight of glory that you're gonna experience for all of eternity that right now your brain cannot comprehend. There's a promise. There's purpose to our suffering. We need to know that and to believe that. We're the only ones that have that. And that's why we don't have to suffer like other people. And that should then stand out as our witness to the world. That when they see us go through, yeah, the same types of suffering as everybody else, and when they see us suffer as believers, they should be able to look at us and go, man, they don't suffer like us. Why? It points to our hope. It points to our hope. Because suffering for us only precedes glory. Because Jesus suffered for us so that we could join him in his glory. So he says this in verse 9, resist him, resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He says, man, you're not alone in this. You're not alone in this. And he says, stand firm. Stand firm in your faith. What's, he, what's, what's that mean? What, it sounds cool. It sounds like something a Christian would say. What's he talking about? He's not talking about like mustering up some sort of strong feeling or emotion. He's talking, he's saying this, know what you believe and be unmovable in it. He's saying know doctrine. Know the teachings of the Bible. Know what, what it is that for the past 2,000 years, Christians have been willing to suffer and die for. 
know that and be immovable in it. That's what, man, we'll never be alone because the brotherhood that all believers throughout all generations, this is what we've trusted in. Stand firm on that. He doesn't say, yeah, and when Satan comes to you and roars, when, when people mock you for your faith, when they make fun of you, when they persecute you, when they push back against you, don't run away and cower. Stand firm in what you believe. Stand firm in the scriptures. Know that you're not alone. And he says, then, man, yeah, the devil will run from you because he can't stand against this. And his roar <laughs> loses all of its power when the word of God is held firmly to. Verse 10. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The God of all grace. He has all the grace that we need and more. He has called us to eternal glory, and his calling will not fail. But don't miss this, that this calling is in Christ. That's important. We're going to share in the glory of Christ. Christ has secured eternal glory for his people. He has delivered us from sin and damnation and will complete the work he started in us. He'll share his glory. Awesome. What's glory? <laughs> I still, like, I, I've studied this word a lot, try to meditate on it, and still, when I hear the word glory, my brain just goes to as something shiny. Glory. Light coming down from above. What's glory like? If this, because, okay, stay with me. If this is our hope, if what he's saying is, hey, no matter what suffering you face in the world, because of the name of Jesus, you stand firm. Don't back up. Don't run away. Don't give in. You stand firm on what you believe. If we're going to be willing to do that, because he's saying, the only reason we should be willing to do that is because of the glory that waits us. We better know what he's talking about. What is that glory? And one pastor said, the glory of God is the going public of his divine attributes. It's, it's the seeing and the experiencing of the holiness of God, of his goodness, of his justice, of his steadfast love, of his grace in his mercy, experiencing all of that for all of eternity, and because of it, only ever knowing joy and peace and real satisfaction, knowing and experiencing the love of God for all of eternity in the person of Jesus. What's the glory of God? It's seeing Jesus face to face. And let me say this, if for you, if that doesn't move you, Let me say it this way. For the believer, that's all we want. What's glory? What's heaven? It's Jesus. It's seeing Jesus. It's being with Jesus. 
He says, he himself will do this. You see that? And after you've suffered a little while, the little while again, maybe being 80 years, but a little while in light of eternity. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's not our strength. It's not our strength. That standing firm on the word, we don't do that in our strength. Now, that's, what, that's what Peter wants us to see. Don't make the same mistake as me. Don't get taken down here. And we do that in absolute humility, knowing that it is only by the grace of God and the strength that he provides that we stand firm in the gospel, under the mighty hand of God who has saved us, rescued us, and he has the power to keep us. So for some of you, here's my challenge, here's my encouragement. And if you don't know Jesus like that, if you don't know Jesus where the greatest thought, right, the greatest thought of what will heaven be like for eternity, for you, that's not Jesus, man, please, tonight, repent and trust in Christ. Pull your youth pastor aside, our staff. We'd love to talk to you about what does it mean to repent and to put our faith and trust in Jesus. What does it mean to be saved? And as a believer, man, let's, let's do this. Let's pursue this. Real humility. Real humility. Constantly preaching the gospel to ourselves. Constantly thinking about the promises of God and who we are in Christ so we can see God correctly, so we'll see ourselves as we really are, so we can just be free to live for the glory of God and to serve others. Thanks for listening. We hope this has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Be sure to give us a rating and review. And for more Snowbird content, check out our other podcast, No Sanity Required.